0: and welcome to this really special podcast edition today. Our discussion, supported by Medivet and by MSD Animal Health, brings together some of the most brilliant minds when it comes to talking about everything vaccination and particularly uh, leptospirosis-based. So today we're chatting with uh, John, with uh, Gareth and with Colette covering all things vaccination, but also some of the challenges um, that we've faced, particularly when it comes to vaccinations through the coronavirus pandemic. Just to introduce myself, my name is Scott. I um, am a specialist in small animal internal medicine, but really will just be uh, facilitating the discussion today. I won't um, embarrass myself by stumbling over introductions. I think it's much better that they introduce themselves. So if we can start, John, with you, just giving the listeners a little bit of uh, your background, if that's okay.
1: Yes, um, I'm John Helps. I'm a veterinary surgeon. Um, I qualified in 1990 and I spent slightly less than half of my career uh, in veterinary practice, uh, in small and, and mixed practice, um, and developed an interest in small animal internal medicine. Um, and then uh, around about 2003, I joined uh uh, the uh, industry, the, the animal health industry, uh, with uh, InterVet initially and uh, latterly with, with MSD now. Um, my roles sort of varied, but it's generally been a technical role. Um, and uh, I've looked after the Nobivac vaccine range for, for many years. So I've got a quite a deep interest in, in vaccinology and also preventative medicine in general, really. That's about me, I think. No, that, no, that was good. That
0: was that was, that was very succinct. <laughs> that was very good. Um, and obviously, it really, and an actually, I really, again, and we'll come on to talk about this, I think just vaccinations generally, we could go on forever talking about um, not only companion animal vaccines, but actually vaccinations, quite literally at the moment, the hottest topic um, and such an so such an interesting um, kind of area to be involved in. So we're also joined by um, Gareth. Gareth. Um, so welcome um, and if, if it's okay with you just to give us a little bit of a insight into your uh, your background
2: thank you i'm gareth richardson um i'm a vet, veterinary surgeon as well i qualified in 1994 in south africa and spent various roles around south africa and in the uk eventually ending up in medivet in 2003 i became a partner in 2004 and worked in practice up until 2015. In 2009 I became a senior partner, concentrated on gaining a surgery certificate and eventually became an advanced practitioner in in surgery. Um, I gave up operating on bones to concentrate more on clinical standards and regional management, eventually solely focusing on clinical standards and that led to my current role as Chief Clinical Officer of Medivan.
0: Oh, wow. I think that the, the most sensible thing there was giving up operating on bones. I think that was a very wise choice. I've, ne- I've <laughs> never enjoyed that. <laughs> well, ne- in fact, never have I enjoyed doing that. So, no, brilliant. So, so you uh, have, your role is 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 then mostly kind of, um, is, is non-clinical now, but you're kind of, um, uh, you work across many different hostels then, I presume.
2: Correct. My role's non-clinical, but... Um, you know, I I oversee the clinical standards of our whole group across, you know, all disciplines.
0: Great. OK, brilliant. Thank you. And then Colette, um, I'm really interested. Um, Well, I'm interested to speak to you all, but I, I, I um, particularly what you're doing now is it sounds fascinating. So I think if you can just give us a bit of an insight into what uh, you're up to now and, and what your career has been like up to up to date.
3: Sure. So I'm Colette Taylor. Um, I'm currently doing a PhD at the RVC, which I started a few years ago. Um, prior to that, I qualified from Bristol in 2016 and then spent a couple of years in first opinion practice and then switched to emergency practice with vets now and then um, started this PhD in 20, end of 2018 on canine leptospirosis. So my PhD is mostly looking at um, the epidemiology of the disease in the UK. So looking at like risk factors um, and exploring different aspects of it, because it's not very well studied in the UK. Um, And then also trying to make a diagnostic test that would be able to differentiate antibodies from vaccination versus infection antibodies.
0: Yeah. And I think already, I think that's really, I think for me, you know, leptospirosis, I think is one of these funny things because we as vets, I think in small animal practice generally will be very familiar with the fact that leptospirosis is a thing and we vaccinate against it. But I think you've just highlighted there, there are still so many kind of diagnostic and even therapeutic challenges with the disease. It's still mysterious, I think, in so many ways. And so I think it's, it's such an interesting, um, you know a disease that we see but i think still uh challenging for us uh absolutely in practice so kind of moving you know, just going back john a little bit to this idea of um we, we mentioned your your um experience with vaccines taking it back to kind of the challenges we are facing right now and we have faced over the last year um the pandemic coronavirus has affected our lives in so many ways as practitioners and beyond it's affected all of our lives obviously but i think it's had a a very very specific impact on the veterinary profession and 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 definitely we have faced some very um significant challenges what kind of impact have you seen the pandemic having on vaccination Um, you know i suppose we would consider that a more routine thing rather than necessarily you know an emergency procedure and actually one of the things that came to mind when i was thinking about this is this this and i've seen a lot of debate about this online so okay let's let's delay the vaccine but how long is it okay to delay it for and how long is it before it becomes a more significant concern because of the risk of actually contracting the disease you're trying to prevent against yeah
1: yeah, I think that's very interesting. I think it, obviously the pandemic took a lot of us by surprise and I, I remember back to March last year, uh, <coughs> various um, you know groups within the industry um, in, and professional bodies were sort of scrabbling together to try and come up with some useful guidance to, to manage uh, the situation that practices were facing. Um, very quickly, um, obviously, based on advice that, uh, in relation to the first lockdown, obviously, vaccine sales uh, fell dramatically um, and practices were, una- were unable to, to do their routine consultations. It was interesting with a slightly more European perspective that different countries did slightly different things in those circumstances and perhaps sometimes prioritised vaccines a little bit more. Um You know, in retrospect, obviously, um, we've seen, obviously, some recovery in the the vaccine figures. But to be honest, when you look um, across the sort of uh, investigation of what what has been happening in practices over the full year, you know, vaccine consultations have been running behind uh, what we've seen with with previous years. Um, But we we certainly, um, you know, there was a capacity issue, I think, as well. People didn't want to, obviously, come to practice even when it opened up somewhat. When we look at some of the information that um, Savsnet um, from the University of Liverpool's been, been giving us, we see uh, certainly some evidence for some increase in infectious disease, particularly parvovirus. virus. Um, and um, you know, if we use the laboratory-confirmed diagnosis as a bit of a proxy for um, what's been going on more widely, we see, you know, at, at this stage, even um, now, some time on. Um, if we look at the last six months of parvovirus submissions um, to, to labs, we're running at nearly double the level we were uh, of, of of disease diagnosis um, compared to, to 2019. So I think, you know, particularly where it was young puppies that weren't being vaccinated at that stage, you know, there was quite a big impact on that Uh, and I I think that that trend if anything has got a little bit worse since there so it is is a concern that perhaps some of the uh, changes uh, that are occurring could well be impacting our ability to control uh, infectious disease there but of course there are wider impacts of that than just the disease you vaccinate against I mean I think that those preventative healthcare consultations have a tremendous role in, t- in terms of the more general welfare of, of animals and picking up health problems and issues and so on. And I think that's sometimes not always well appreciated by by clients. I think it's appreciated by, by practitioners, but it's a big source of... Um, know workload and and and, uh for practices um you know dentistry all sorts of things you know follow on from um those consultations and so uh it's very regrettable if if that's we're not getting back to a more normal state of affairs and also the, the level of communication between um practices and their clients i i i visit a practice myself and have noticed quite a difference in the way i'm communicated with myself and i'm sure you know that's something that that you know listeners will be you know familiar yeah with.
0: on so many levels though i think that, that 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 communication with clients has been so challenging and and relationships with clients have definitely definitely changed and and so across the board that is a a, a massive still you know ongoing a massive pressure and then actually i was i was speaking to someone today about then the anxiety people are feeling about then having people back in the consulting room and, and back in the clinic. And actually, that brings with it this whole other host of, of kind of stresses. So the whole thing is definitely so um so layered. I really like that point you made about, you know, these are not just we're not just, you know, robotically getting people in for vaccinations every X, Y and Z timescale, we're actually it's part of a wider relationship preventative uh, healthcare generally, but also you know, it's the opportunity to ask questions that maybe the owners wouldn't even think twice about. What do you feed your dog? Oh, Absol- just absolutely. digestive biscuits. You should probably change that. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> that until you ask the question, what do you yeah. feed your dog? You're just presuming they feed something that's reasonable. So I think there's so many different parts, uh, so many different parts to that. Uh, Gareth, I wonder, so we're talking about potentially a solution to this problem over the last year, but I wanted to also just, what i think is really fascinating and i'm sure you've all experienced this there's also a shift maybe not you know a change in people's attitude towards vaccination generally um and this is human or animal there is obviously um certain populations of people uh for whatever reason and i'm not being critical of them but they have different reasons for being um against the the use of vaccinations human and animal potentially and so first of all i wonder if you were able to talk a little bit about um potentially the approach to people that are more skeptical about routine vaccinations and dogs and cats generally um, and then maybe a little bit more about some of the things that you're doing to try and help um bring people back up to speed with vaccinations
2: Yes, thank you. Um, Sadly, there was quite a change in attitude towards vaccination following the well-known and now widely discredited work of Dr. Andrew Wakefield in the human sphere with regards to MMR and the autism link. But we do know that vaccines can have adverse reactions and can have side effects. And it's important not to be dismissive of people's fears and attitudes towards that. However, a lot of people have lost sight of the effect of the infectious diseases themselves. And few people have actually experienced um, a lot of the diseases, which is a testament to the success of the vaccines that we use. Um, People don't often see diseases such as distemper and infectious canine hepatitis as much as they once did. And this leads to a false sense of comfort amongst our clients that these diseases are largely historical, which... You know, as John has alluded to, in the case of parvovirus, is most definitely not the case. And if you stop vaccinating or let the vaccine immunity wane for whatever reason, such as this pandemic, you will see a resurgence of these cases. So our approach is, is to consult with our clients and discuss their concerns, but provide a firm rep- uh, recommendation on what we believe is best for the welfare of the pet and to try to alleviate the concerns as much as possible. So we have moved towards vaccinating less frequently as a profession um, with the support of the vaccine manufacturers. We now have longer intervals um, which have been tested between some components of the vaccines, such as the distemper hepatitis and parvovirus fractions. And we also offer um, serology testing to concern clients so they can actually assess what the status of their pet's immunity is where that test exists. It doesn't exist, unfortunately, for all diseases. Um, we don't have that for leptospirosis, for example. So we generally try to discuss with clients what's in their pet's best interest, and um, also try to get to the bottom of what their concerns are, and build a plan that they're comfortable with to overcome that.
0: So when someone says to you, or someone says to one of your vets, so I was on Facebook and it says on Facebook that we are over vaccinating our dogs and cats. What is your what would be your response to that?
2: Our response to that would be to, first of all, acknowledge the concern um, to be understanding, and reassuring that we are all as a team wanting the best for that pet. And we want to protect that pet as a family member. I would then move on to discuss, you know, what the significant diseases are that we're vaccinating against, as well as what the latest research and advice from various um, global bodies, such as the WSAVA or the BSAVA, um, as well as what the manufacturers recommend, and then move on to discuss in general what's been done to extend the interval of the vaccines. I would also go into explaining that, um, antibodies don't last forever, and immunity does wane over a period of time. And I think people are becoming more familiar with this in light of the COVID vaccines at present. So it does make it a little bit easier for people to understand how vaccines work and how the immune system functions. Following on from all of that, we would tailor up the plan for for the client and for that specific pet as to what type of vaccines it needs, and what it would, you know, what that pet would need to um, be protected in its local environment.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that's, people appreciate that individualized, you know, you can only individualize so much, but I think people appreciate, and again, going back to what John said about the importance of the consultation, what you're, what you're basically saying is you're taking time to understand the individual pet and that individual pet's needs. And I think that goes a long way because clients absolutely respond well to that when the, when it's when it's really the focus is very much on their own uh their own pet i think it takes this on nicely and i suppose to then delve a little bit into leptospirosis and the reason i say you know we talk about leptospirosis it it's it does sit out on the side a little bit literally on the shelf it's in a separate bottle so as far as vaccinations are concerned so colette maybe you can then um uh, help us understand a little bit more. I suppose my first question is, you're doing a PhD because there's a question to be answered, I presume. <laughs> um, and uh, many, yes. many yes, exactly, many good. Well, you probably not get around to all of them in one PhD, but you can, you know, we'll get you. I'm sure. Um, uh, answer some. So, uh, from a from a UK perspective, um, and we don't have to limit it just to the UK. But what what really do you think? fundamentally some of the information that we need to gather what 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 are the questions that we need to start thinking about kind of answering about leptospirosis and what where are the areas of 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 lack of understanding about the disease
3: well i think it's quite interesting but when when i was in practice i think i kind of assumed that there was lots of like uk specific risk factors and sero-prevalence surveys and stuff done here to like be very uk specific but it seems like um, the more i've delved into literature like there's not a lot of specific information to the uk and so like there's a bunch of studies from the us and a bunch of studies from continental europe but i guess it's kind of reasonable to assume that um, the uk it's an island so maybe the situation is quite different in terms of risk factors and things like that versus other areas of the world um, And so I I think those are are kind of the the more important questions to figure out, like um, what sort of risk factors, I guess, in terms of are there any specific breeds and ages and stuff like that that are risk factors, but also it's quite an environmentally important disease. So dogs are rarely catching it dog to dog. It's like transmitted via the environment. So exploring environmental factors um, is quite important too.
0: Um, Sorry to interrupt you. So as far as kind of, um, you know, you talk about environmental factors, just just talk through a little bit, because we have this picture in our minds about dogs drinking from some rancid, stagnant bit of water or some rat running around that it's come in contact with. I think that's kind of. The, the things that are conjured up in my mind as far as transmissibility or whatever what 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 do we truly know about about the risk factors and 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 when this disease is is most commonly transmitted in our canine patients
3: um so so this is i guess it's quite nice to talk about because we've just um published a study on some of these environmental risk factors so it seems like in other bits of the world there is a um there's quite a lot of seasonality to the disease. And that's something we've found for um, our study in Great Britain as well, that there's um, increased risk of leptospirosis in autumn. Um, And I think potentially there could be a range of different factors for that, but um, potentially one of them could be uh, the rodent population fluctuates around the year. But in autumn, that's when you've got highest number of rodents because they are breeding and moving around to be breeding so there's babies and adults about um but i guess in terms of other risk factors like when a lot of the research on lepsis uh people think it's a disease definitely seen with like flooding and stuff like that and that's certainly true in like tropical developing bits of the world but it's less clear if that is a necessarily a risk factor in developed and more temperate climates. Um, the jury is a bit out on that. Um, but it's also reasonable to assume that we know that lots of other livestock species have leptospirosis and it causes varying disease in them. Um, and certainly for some of our work, we found that um, proximity to horses or, or areas of high horse density had a higher probability of um, certain the australis serogroup infections so it's it's a really complicated disease because you have all these different serovars and serogroups and so probably the risk factors for different ones
0: varies quite a lot. And I think that's also when people think about leptospirosis it almost becomes a kind of like once you start to look at all these different serovars you're just like you know it just becomes very confusing and then actually when you're sending tests off to the lab, you know, whether you're sending off antibody and, and and they're starting to say, well, we'll put them in these different pools and we'll do these different things. And then by that point, people are like, what? So I think that, I mean, genuinely, you get this report back from the lab and it's like, what? We're going to do this other thing with it. Well, I still don't understand what that is. So what do you, there are still obviously diagnostic challenges with lep. I, I truly think still di- diagnostic challenges with leptospirosis. So I think you mentioned part of your PhD is to potentially, are we demystifying that a little bit? Are we helping a little bit with that? Yeah,
3: we are hoping to. I think COVID's <laughs> thrown a bit of a spanner in the works yeah. for, <laughs> for managing to develop the test to its full potential. But essentially, the hope is to make a different diagnostic test that um, rather than uh, with the MAT okay. test, it 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 picks up antibodies to leptospirosis, but it doesn't um, pick up specific infection antibodies. And so the the background for this test is that they have these really conserved proteins that sit on their surface, um, and these shouldn't be in the vaccine culture strains. So then if it was raised an antibody response to these proteins, we would assume that they had an infection rather than they've been vaccinated. Um, because the vaccinating I think we're quite good in the UK at vaccinating against leptospirosis so then that adds like another layer of challenge if you're like well I have a vaccinated dog and it's showing. Possible lepto signs, and how do I interpret this incredibly confusing thing about pools? It's come yeah. back to me, and
0: yeah. <laughs> and I don't think we probably yeah. have enough time on the podcast today to demystify the pools, so we'll leave <laughs> the pools there. Really interesting, then, about the vaccination of leptospirosis, and I, I think that also stands, uh, John, a little bit at the side, too. Because, uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I think, well. I mean, I, I need correcting because I'm I I've I've not vaccinated for a little bit of time, but um. So what currently is the thinking behind leptospirosis vaccination and how because that is a more regular vaccine than the kind of core DHP or DHPP? Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh, again, I'm showing my my lack of knowledge in this area, but but um. Yeah, but if you can just kind of talk us through what the current thinking is regarding the the vaccination protocol
1: in terms of the choice of vaccine or in terms of the actual vaccination course i'm sorry I just didn't quite understand I think the question
0: we'll, well both then so we've got the how many so okay. we we talk about you know l2 l4 what the you know what we're vaccinating against but also the, the the time course of the the vaccination
1: yeah Absolutely. Okay. Well, uh, thinking about the the vaccine choice, of course, um, you know, a number of years ago, um, it was clear that, you know, a range a wider range of serovars uh, were responsible for clinical disease in dogs. Um, And that was a trend that was particularly noticed, well, it was noticed in the States to start off with, with with perhaps a different selection of of serovars, but certainly something that was highlighted within Europe and and certainly uh, within mainland Europe, uh, we were seeing an increasing number of cases of leptospirosis to serovars such as, um, you know, the, the Australis Cera group, for example, serovars, um, and, and one called Grepa as well. Um, and in some cases, uh, that, that disease was causing zoonotic problems. And in other cases, uh, we were seeing relatively large numbers of animals being referred to uh, centres like the University of Bern, for example, um, and those individuals um, had uh, acute kidney injury, often associated with these um, uh, new, new serovars, the emerging or re-emerging serovars, and so um, you know that that was brought us into the process of um, uh, bringing out a tetravalent vaccine. And uh, similar trends were seen across um, Europe and certainly to an extent as well, within the U.K. since we've been certainly seeing positive cases to um, the australia sera group. So um, obviously the justification for uh, launching um, a tetravalent vaccine across Europe is that that's better adapted to strains um, that, are, that are circulating. Um, and, and certainly in countries where we've been seeing much larger numbers of cases, let's say like Switzerland is a, is a good example, then we've seen substantial reductions in those types of cases uh, since doing that. So the vaccine's certainly been very effective um, at doing its job. And all the trends perhaps aren't quite the same. And and I'm sure um, Colette will give you more information on the different serovars. We're certainly seeing uh, these novel serovars circulating, uh, some of them anyway, not circulating in the UK as well. So um, that's really the justification. Certainly for any dogs that travel, you know, there are some countries now where those novel serovars are the, the dominant you know, dominant forms of the, the leptospirosis that's causing disease. Um, as far as sort of the, the vaccination uh, routine is concerned, obviously the, the leptospirosis is an inactivated vaccine, whereas most of the uh, freeze-dried um, uh, vaccines we give to dogs, uh, there are live attenuated strains. Um, generally, we need to give two vaccines of the same form um, to start the primary course, and so generally speaking, we would. Recommend that those were of the same vaccine brand um, and and formulation, um, and that's generally with the, the L4 vaccine, four weeks apart. Um, with the um, the Lepto2 vaccine, where it's used, it would generally be two to four weeks apart, um, with a a finish from ten weeks of age, um, and then uh, then obviously as a as an, an inactivated vaccine, unlike the freeze-dried fractions, which generally have a, an extended duration of immunity, they tend to give you quite good long-lasting immunity in at least three years. But leptospirosis, really, it's not a vaccine that's associated with long-term immunity. So generally, if one needs to keep the protection, and it is, it is a disease we will see in any age of dog it, it, it certainly there, there there are some again some age predispositions which I'm sure uh Colette can talk about but but certainly a, a, an annual vaccine is required for all dogs at risk with that that particular uh, pathogen so that's the sort of routine uh sort of nature of the uh, the vaccination.
0: I just a question came into my head there actually I don't know Gareth if you want to maybe answer or, or whoever um you know I think one of the things that um has come up with coronavirus um, is, you know, if I get the AstraZeneca, can I then have the Pfizer as my second injection or, you know, vice versa? And actually, that's <laughs> one of the things that I'm sure, Gareth, you yeah. experience in practice where, you know, uh, owner gets puppy, puppy has been given first vaccination by vet in Scotland, <laughs> some dodgy vet in Scotland, <laughs> and then um, comes to your practice and um, you then give second vaccination. Is Is there any... Is there anything we need to be kind of aware of there, as far as, um, again using one vaccination over the other in that kind of scenario when they've already had one and then they come up to your practice for a second, um, injection?
2: I think we're guided by the science, and we we, we tend to be guided by the manufacturers, but in in general, um, I think John's already mentioned that specifically the leptospirosis vaccines, um, you would want to follow up with the same vaccine that has been given before to achieve the immunity. With the viral vaccines, that tends not to be an issue. And in fact, you would expect from first principles a better and stronger duration of immunity by giving mixed uh, brands. Most practices in the UK tend to stock one, or one manufacturer's um, product. And so we would tend to follow up with whatever we stock, um, irrespective of what it's had before, with the exception of the leptospirosis, where we would want to follow up with what it had been given or start again.
0: Okay. No, I think and, and, because I think that's something again, probably something that we'll find you know coming up on 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 Facebook as a uh, as you say a, a non scientific debate. So it's good to good to understand that. Um, So we, John mentioned again, Colette, just some of the work you're doing, I I suppose we could, I I actually, I think we joked when we were talking about recording this that we could probably just do leptospirosis for, you know, two and a half hours or something. I'm sure you could talk about leptospirosis for two and a half hours. We do not have two and a half hours. Just if you can just sort of give us a bit of a summary, really, of um, those kind of specific risk factors um, that you are um, looking at uh, regarding leptospirosis in the UK.
3: Okay, so I guess specific in a nutshell, um, in terms of the patient specific demographic risk factors, we found that we had uh, increased risks in younger dogs and also um, the kinds of breeds you perhaps expect to have leptospirosis, like working breeds like Cockers and Collies um, and Lurchers. So when we looked at the UK specific risk factors, that was kind of in line with a lot of the rest of continental Europe. Um, but in terms of environmental risks, um, what we saw in this thing we did called ecological niche modelling, where we look at the different groups to see if they have different environmental preferences and then map that to see how um, it looked across the whole of the UK. We found that there was quite a bit of variability between the different groups, and also just for leptospirosis overall in Great Britain. It was quite variable which areas had higher probability and I think lots of it is the areas that you might expect. So, um, southern England had a higher risk and probability, heading up to like the Midlands sort of area, but quite low probability of presence, largely in the north of England and Scotland, with exception of one of the Sierra groups, which was one called Cedro, um, and I guess that's. It's interesting to perhaps keep it in mind in Scotland and stuff that there can be still some leptospirosis risk because maybe that's a bit less on the radar. But also, I guess that's that's one of the ones that's not covered in the existing vaccines. So perhaps even if you have a vaccinated dog, but you are suspicious of leptospirosis, it's worth perhaps considering testing for it um, because it's it's still possible because there's so many different strains of the disease that um, it could be one of the non-vaccine covered ones.
0: And I think that just highlights a very, you know, important point and people will be, I'm sure, aware of this, but I think that's one of the key things when um, investigating and managing cases is that we cannot, um, you know, as as great as vaccines are, we cannot say 100% that they are not affected by the disease because they have been fully vaccinated, you know, so I think that is important as far as our our investigation and management keeping keeping the disease very much on the radar as far as kind of things that are going to be useful to practitioners who are listening um i don't know if you can just kind of give us a little bit more maybe guidance on um the way that these cases of leptospirosis are presenting um i think actually for me in practice you know and we do see these cases I think one of the take-home messages is that they don't present the way that the textbook always tells you that they will, Um, and so I think there can be quite an interesting kind of variety of ways in which these cases can present to us, would you agree? Yeah, yeah,
3: I think definitely a lot of them don't seem to read the textbook that we have all been given about them, Um, but I think also... um, maybe one of the big troubles with leptospirosis is the presentation is just so vague a lot of the time and it could be confusable with so many other things. Um, And I think certainly we have in our minds that we expect like kidney or and or liver dysfunction to go with it. Um, And we kind of expect it to be quite an acute disease. Um, And perhaps that is the, the majority of them, but also Um, I think there's been some work seeing that there is um, some more uh, unexpected ways that it can present. Like, I don't think we've seen this in the UK, but in some bits of Europe, they've seen like a a kind of respiratory form where there's pulmonary hemorrhage going on. And so the dogs uh, might come in for for breathing difficulties difficulty in having um, presentations in that sense and then perhaps leprosporosis is a bit more of an afterthought because we don't expect it to look like that Um, but there has also been some cases where um, it's a a bit more of chronic disease as well so chronic um, renal or hepatic issues rather than acute ones Um, and I think that's kind of like the the main ways here.
0: No I was going to say I think it's really interesting you mentioned that kind of pulmonary those pulmonary changes and I think you know again it's actually when you read the textbook these things are listed but i think what is not it's just not in the forefront of someone's mind i think we think liver and kidneys and it's very you know very you know very much tunnel vision from that point of view but actually some interesting studies you know uh recently um where you know we've seen uh one or the other you know it doesn't just have to you know i think again maybe a misconception is it has to be liver and kidneys or it's definitely not leptospirosis but actually uh, one and another can uh, happen independently and, and and actually some interesting work as um you know looking at other ways of looking for leptospirosis within liver tissue that maybe we're not routinely doing so i think it it, it really can still present in a, a in a confusing way to us yeah definitely and there
3: was a paper that came out quite recently looking at i think it was a hospital in the east of england so i guess this is again like a referral population which I think is important to bear in mind for general practitioners that a lot of the research is referral populations and by definition they're going to be sicker or weirder potentially um but like half of them only had um half of them had hepatic issues only um which I think is is quite interesting and yeah shows that there can be one or the other or both and quite variable. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the, the the key messages that's coming through here, loud and clear, is obviously just, again, the the importance of um, preventative healthcare and the fact that <clears throat> actually we're not trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes with this. It's not like a this is not just an opportunity to give a dog or a cat an injection. This is genuinely an opportunity to do important stuff regarding the prevention of infectious disease, but also... Um, having conversations with clients that we maybe routinely wouldn't have so I think um, Gareth if you wouldn't mind I suppose kind of um, based on our conversation kind of summarizing from your perspective the importance um, of preventative healthcare and actually just emphasizing again what you are currently trying to do to kind of bring everyone back up to speed well the
2: importance of preventative healthcare cannot be emphasized enough um, those initial puppy consultations can set the client and the pet up for life um, as you've alluded to you're discussing diet you're discussing parasite pre- prevention you're looking at growth of the puppy you're looking at the development of you know, the orthopedic aspects, um, its hips, its elbows, you're looking at the eyes, the ears, you're looking at the teeth. um, So you're generally giving a a holistic overview of that animal and you're discussing with the clients everything that you would anticipate that that pet would need for the rest of its life, training, behaviour, aspects. Um, COVID has obviously made that very difficult with the way that most practices across the UK are currently practicing with clients not coming into the consulting room by and large and um, it does break down that initial bond that you form and the trust that somebody who's acquired a new pet uh, will develop with with their vet. Um, We try to overcome that as far as possible Um, but it is difficult at the moment and as John stated earlier there's been a huge backlog of these initial consultations. Sometimes puppies have been acquired from, you know, sources outside of the UK, their vaccine status is questionable. Um, we certainly have seen a lot of those puppies becoming ill with diseases such as parvovirus. Um, some of the vaccination certificates that have been presented were f- fraudulently obtained or forged. Um, so there, there has been a huge problem Developing from COVID. Um, allied to that, we have the backlog from all the lockdowns where routine vaccinations were not done. So we're sometimes seeing these patients later than we ordinarily would have seen and trying to catch up the vaccine status as well as all the general health um, information that we, we're trying to impart to the to the client. And um, you know, the, the whole effect is of COVID on society generally and on pets has been devastating, really, I'd say. Um, we're still not back to normal and it's still going to take some time to, to get capacity to get back to normal. Um, however, we would strongly encourage everybody who's you know acquired a pet or who's unsure about their vaccination state to make an appointment and discuss um, you know using vaccine amnesties you know trying to remove barriers and trying to get those pets back on track really
0: yeah and yeah and we'll get there i think like you say it's just not um it's going to take time to get back to any sort of real normality isn't it okay so just to to finish things up i wanted to um we'll do our quick fire round (laughs) Karen and I this is our favorite part um so um we'll just just in turn John we'll start with you I think uh, your career has obviously taken sort of an interesting turn you know you've you've gone off and uh done things you know not necessarily again you know staying in clinical practice um if you were to have Mm. all of your time again or all of it and you were filling out your application oh my god oh my goodness i wasn't meaning to emphasize that wasn't an emphasis <laughs> on age um but the- <laughs> so i made that sound like a long time but um <laughs> that's all right so, um no offense uh, meant um if you were to go back to the moment you were filling out your vex school application would you fill it out the same way would you do it all again
1: yeah i would yeah no i i've i've loved my career actually i i love my time in practice um i really enjoyed that i did enjoy doing my medicine certificate all these sorts of things and then actually to see it from a completely different aspect but you know very much part still part of that whole uh you know uh you know, process and and how we you know to have that knowledge and to be able to apply it in different ways has been fascinating really um and i and I and I think it's a preventive healthcare is a really interesting area. Uh, you know, I, it's not the only area I'm involved in. I look after the diabetes portfolio, but at the end of the day. Um the, the value that that adds to uh, not only to to veterinary practice, but really to the welfare of our patients is enormous um, and actually often underappreciated by quite a lot of people. We we love talking about and I'm fascinated by all the latest technological developments on surgery and medicine and so on, but actually. The preventative side of things kind of falls in a different area, and and uh, I think when you you understand how it's really working to support you know the health of our pets, and I've had the, I have had the experience of traveling to countries of the world where that sort of preventative healthcare isn't isn't really in place to the same level, uh, and you see a very dis- different. Picture as far as the, the welfare of pets and, and through infectious diseases there as well, and not just uh, generally. But so I think you know I'm convinced that it, it has huge value, um, and we mustn't forget that. And uh, we we need to be mindful of reminding our clients of the value of preventative healthcare because um, uh, you know quite quickly you see when things don't go quite right, things start to to, to deteriorate. So we need to get back there. Um, and uh, really communicate well with our clients and and engage them on, you know, when they've got scepticism or hesitancy around what, you know, what they're doing with their pet, we need to find ways of of challenging them and and engaging with them. Um, And it may not be just in the consultation room, We, we have to think broader now because of the the impacts of the the pandemic so using all communication Mm -hmm. tools yeah and
0: i think that's true i think we've we've yeah we definitely have to think outside the box and 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 people are accessing information in so many different ways now it's and you know it's incredible so yeah no absolutely great thank you and gareth i think again you obviously have had a um a very career in you know um which has gone off in different directions If you were to and it's always difficult to limit this to one thing, but, you know, um, if you were to thinking back on your career um, and maybe speaking to, I don't know, your younger self or or younger veterinary professionals out there. um, What um, is there any piece of advice that you would give to yourself or give to them um, to better sort of equip them with this uh, profession, do you think? That's a challenging
2: one. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think if I had to go back and talk to my younger self. i would say back your decisions and um you know go with your heart do what you've set your mind to do and you won't regret it because we all became vets to help animals it sounds like a cliche but we pretty much all had a passion for for animals and um, wanted to help them in some way and um various arms of the profession all do that through different ways whether you're in academia or whether you're in industry or whether you're a practitioner on the ground or whether you're in management you're still using your influence to better the welfare of your patients. Do
0: you know I think that's I actually think that's really really powerful because actually that's true just because you take a decision to do a, a, an inadvertent commas a non-clinical role it you, you're absolutely right you're still having an impact on that chain of events that ultimately ends with a patient and a owner in a consulting room, right? So you are bettering that process, regardless of where you are. And actually, I've never had no, I've not heard it said in that way before. I think that's uh, yeah. No, that was a good one. Well, that was good. That was very good. Yeah. Um. Okay. So, Colette just to to finish up. So you, um, again have you know doing some interesting and varied things um in your career too. Is there um, can you think of someone that has particularly inspired you and it doesn't have to be you know to do with veterinary medicine it it can be it could be your dad or mum or whatever you know but but just someone that's inspired you um maybe from a kind of career point of view I don't know I feel like I might need longer to think about that maybe they're not that obvious
3: subtle on the (laughs) way or something I don't know I think um (laughs) both in practice and like in uni and now doing PhD like that maybe there's not like a, a single one standout person but I think everyone is very it's very interesting and nice to see um everyone's careers and everyone's interests and how they approach different things and I think um working in academia working in clinical practice and like I think you can take a lot from other people in in ways they approach things and so probably cherry picking lots from other people and being like yes I want to do it the way they do it that's good or something like that
0: yeah no I think that's really true actually and I think I think that's very much you know through many of the conversations I've had and you know within podcasts and beyond is very much that people don't think they're inspiring but actually you you just have to start talking to someone and then suddenly you're like wow yeah okay, I'm gonna take that little bit of like you said so I think we're you know we're we're all inspiring in our in our own different ways. So no, that's a that's a good answer too. A massive thank you to John, to Gareth, and Colette for that brilliant uh, discussion uh, today please do head over to the show notes. We've got loads of information in there um, regarding uh, lots of elements of the discussion today, but also lots of really, really useful uh, links, particularly some great contact details for Colette if you have any further queries about uh, her work and some of the the, uh, vaccination protocols that we discussed. John's email is there too, and he's very, very happy to answer any uh, vaccine-related queries we really are so interested to know what you think as well. And uh, so if you have any feedback about the discussion today or the podcast generally, then please do let us know. I want to say a massive thank you to all of you for listening today. uh, And hopefully we'll see you next time.